postmodern and post-Christian are both terms that the, the church seriously needs to retire. We're going to the world to tell them who we are, and we're not going to the world to present who God is. The world in which so much is focused on building walls and keeping people out, an alternative way to live is to live by... It's almost like raising up a white flag and saying, ah, it's all the secular people's fault, and no one's listening or coming to our evangelistic how can we redesign Adventism to be effective at reaching emerging Western culture? That's what the Story Church podcast is all about. Adventism redesigned. Hey everyone, it's Pastor Marcus here. Welcome back to the Story Church podcast. I am back with Max to continue exploring this topic on the worship wars and the interplay between the worship wars and uh, deep, deep rooted issues that we have that affect our capacity to do mission effectively in the post to metamodern age. So uh, Max, welcome back. Glad to have you with with uh, with us again here. Um, we had a really heavy couple of episodes, um, or really the episode on philosophy and science. That was really heavy. And you're telling me this next one is going to be just as heavy. So I'm really excited about this. Uh, the difference is in this next one, we're pretty much going to be in scripture. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to hand it over to you, man. Walk us through. All righty. Thank you again for having me with this. Uh, I'm having fun. Like I, straight up, I am having fun doing this. It's honestly helpful for me to be able to get some of these thoughts out there and like articulated because over the last year I've been like thinking through these topics like just in my head and like writing it down Mm. and so being able to actually say it out loud it's it's a nice way to test the waters with some of this material (laughs) so I I do appreciate it awesome Um, awesome so this topic is the theme of sacrifice as it pertains to worship this is a huge one um and it's one of the it's one of the ones where actually um, there are a handful of like sub points within this that will become very salient for people who either are musicians or have interacted with church musicians a lot. Because this is where we get into places where like the amount of pressure that builds up around the worship team and the worship leader and the musicians and the song leaders and so on um, really starts to affect the way that musicians themselves think of their own role in ministry, right? Um, and that, that's a small part of this, but this, this is really, when we start talking about sacred space, when we start talking about temple language, when we start talking about worship as an offering, uh, where Hebrews says offer, I'm pretty sure it's Hebrews, that says offer the sacrifice of praise. And so somehow interjects praise into the you know, theoretical framework of sacrifice in the Old Testament temple system, like all, all of these ideas coalesce into a cluster of ways that Christian musicians think about what they do, uh, sometimes in healthy and constructive ways, and sometimes in ways that I think undercut um, important doctrines. Um, and also, again, with the way that people try to define what is and isn't acceptable to God, a big thing that we're going to be dealing with it, under this topic is like um what is acceptable to god as an offering what is not acceptable to god what has god actually asked for in worship what is permissible what would qualify as sacrifice to another god you know what Mm. would what would qualify Mm. as a betrayal of god what what would be the equivalent of like erecting an altar to someone else 
right? Yeah, Since that yeah. is all wrapped up in the language of sacrifice in scripture. So this mm. is, um, and what that will lead us to is essentially some of the debates that happened in the New Testament around uh, meat sacrifice to idols. It's going to lead us to a, a, a number of, of things. So this is, mm. a, this is an interesting one. It's a dense one. And I love it. oddly I love enough, it. Um, a topic that I don't feel like people really actually unpack that much in this conversation, which is strange mm. to me because it, it is really us getting into like Bible, Bible stuff, you know, yeah, yeah, definitely. L- less yeah. theology, more biblical studies. So mm-hmm. now having Absolutely. said that, I'm gonna hit you with a theology thing first off, but go ahead, say what you got to say. Oh, no, I was just gonna say, I'm really excited to get into this because there there is a rhetoric around, um, what's the word I'm looking for? There's a rhetoric around this conversation that goes something to the effect of um, when you when you're using diverse styles of music. Um, it's it's yeah, it's well, let me just go ahead and spit it. You're basically you're not worshiping God. You know, you can't worship God with drums. It's impossible. You can't worship God with that style of music. Um, so essentially what you're doing is you're worshiping uh, the nice guys will say you're worshiping yourself and your carnal desires. And uh, the more hardcore folk will say you're worshiping Satan <laughs> yeah. Yeah, <pretty laughs> or you're, you're bowing the knee to Baal uh, yeah. because you threw some Hillsong in there. So, yeah, I, I think it, it, this is yeah, I'm excited to get into this. Mm-hmm. So and I've had people say both of those things to me. So, you know, it's fun. It's really fun. <laughs> people are nice. Um, one thing I want to throw that is people more on the theological side. <laughs> people are just fantastic. People are my favorite. <laughs> 500% of the time. Um, <laughs> so there are two theological principles that I, I want to talk about. Um, so there's a, a section in my reframe series where I talk about the difference between like descriptive and prescriptive passages in the scriptures where you're like, you know, you'll see these instances of people using certain instruments or not, excuse me, not using certain instruments um or doing this that and the other right and this is a pretty basic foundational like hermeneutical thing like some passages are telling you what to do and some passages are just telling you what happened and you're not they're not necessarily instructions right so people generally i hope for the most part understand the difference between like some things are prescriptive some things are just descriptive pretty straightforward one distinction that i think is also helpful and it kind of related not fully but like helpful and sort of related is the difference between the normative worship principle and the regulative worship principle okay um, that's new that's new yeah 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 so, haven't heard that one before yeah so this part part of this is because we actually don't really encounter this distinction very much in adventism it comes up for other denominations um other conservative denominations especially I think Church of Christ uh, may have some of this uh, involved in it. Um, The regulative principle in particular, and and I'm a bit of a newbie to this too, so I would have to do a little bit more digging, but from surface examination, it seems to, the the regulative worship principle seems to have an association with Calvinism. So what do we got going on here? The normative worship principle essentially says, um, what can you do in Christian worship? What are the activities and actions and and goings on that are acceptable in Christian worship? The answer of the normative principle is pretty much anything 
as long as it doesn't directly violate or contradict something that's taught in scripture. Okay. So like, yeah, it does it go against scripture? No. Okay, then sure. Incorporate it. Why not put it in your worship? The regulative principle says, what can you do in Christian worship? Well, only that which is explicitly commanded or exemplified in scripture. Only that which is specifically demanded or, oh, look, this is something that they seem to do a lot in worship in scripture, right? So you have to have a tangible, like, this is the thing to do. Definitely um, sounds very Calvinist. Right. And what's interesting <laughs> to me is that what seems to happen, and from the, the little bit that I've looked at, what seems to happen is it's it, they say scripture, but what they mean is the New Testament. Don't get your worship practices from the Old Testament. And this is what that translates to in practice. Many of the Calvinist churches, especially in times more proximate to Calvin himself, and this would include Calvin's churches. I mean, th this is a fact that I know for sure. Calvin did not favor instrumental music at all in his churches. They were very much like on the acapella train. Yep. I do like acapella music. Acapella music can be super awesome. But mm -hmm. um, for him, it was a, a mandate. Yeah. Because for Calvin, the Old Testament was not a legitimate source for worship practice, for how to conduct oneself during worship. So all of these songs in, in, in the book of Psalms, just as an example, where they list tons of instruments that would be used. I mean, literally, some of the songs are specifically composed for certain instruments, right? You'll see that in the superscript of some of the Psalms. Um, they would just be like, yeah, doesn't apply. Interestingly, while singing the Psalms, which I think is, is fascinating that Calvin would be the type to say, we can sing the Psalms as much as we want. And we, fa in fact, those are our primary songs. We will set them to music and sing them a cappella, but we will sing about using instruments a cappella, which is kind of hilarious. Um, that is, yeah. <laughs> because we can't get our worship theology from the Old Testament. It has to be a distinct command of what to do in the New Testament, because those are the instructions for the church, which is not Israel, right? So the Calvinist line of thinking, the regulative worship principle. Given that there is that, um, you know, dismissal of the Old Testament as a guide for worship practices, obviously the regulative principle wouldn't really fly for Adventists, right? Mm, that's um, right. But it's, but it's interesting. And, and, and I would, I would, I would just jump in really quickly and just, mm. just to make a, a passing comment as well. That is important. Um, the distinction between Adventist um, meta narrative and the Calvinist meta narrative understanding of Scripture, right. mm -hmm. it, they're literally opposites, right? Like in almost every imaginable way. Mm -hmm. And the the concern, the deep concern that I have is because Calvinists tend to be very conservative politically and theologically. The concern that I have is how many Adventists uncritically get their cues from Calvinists on what should be right. happening in Adventism. And this is why this is one of the points I make in my book, Weird Evolution, is like how overwhelmingly, like if Calvinism is running north, Adventism is running south. Like we're so opposite in, in our in our meta-narrative, right. our understanding of God, just about everything. 
And uh, but so many conservative Adventists basically, uh, what's the word? They migrate Calvinist ideas into Adventism because they sound conservative and fundamentalist and they yes. sound good, you know, without critically analyzing how un-Adventist <laughs> many of these ideas yes. are and how they're, they're rooted in, 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 in a view, a theological vision that is fundamentally the opposite of, of what Adventism is. Uh, right. And I would go so far as to say that Adventism is was called by God to be an antidote to ideas like Calvinism, but that's a separate conversation. So just wanted to throw that in there as, as you, as you go, um, you know, because I, I would imagine some Adventists being like, yeah, it's the regular, if it comes from the Calvinist, it's great. It's like, well, do you realize what this stuff's rooted in, you know, which is kind of a separate conversation, but anyways, go on. No, but I, I think that's, it's worth bringing up because, and, and this is the thing we take many of our cues about Christian history from Ellen White. And she has a lot of great things to say about Calvin and the great controversy, right? Mm -hmm. Like he, he gets a pretty glowing review, all things considered. Mm. And of course he's, he's definitely hugely important to the reformation and Absolutely. a tower, yeah. a towering intellectual figure in his own right. Like mm -hmm. no questions asked. Um, I think it, it, it is, however, deeply important for us to understand our recent history because, I mean, and not to go too far, uh, you know, afield with this, but the history of Adventism receiving cultural influence from other Christian groups is like heavily impacted by Calvinists. I mean, this mm -hmm. is what the 1950s were for us with yeah, the absolutely. Adventist evangelical conferences, the publication of questions on doctrine. Mm -hmm. Um Actually, interestingly, I finished reading a book uh, by George Knight somewhat recently, Ellen White's Afterlife. Um, yes. I'm pretty sure it's in that book where he kind of has this like side note where he says, I hope I'm not misattributing this to the wrong source, but he basically said, um, really, they should have called those the Adventist fundamentalist um, conferences because of mm -hmm. like what Walter Martin and, and Donald Barnhouse represented within their stream of, of Protestant Christianity, right? That's right. They might've been a little more towards fundamentalist than maybe like what would be like the mainstream of evangelicalism per se. Mm -hmm. But I, I mean, that, that might be opinion, but I think it's worth considering regardless. Um, Calvinism has exerted a certain amount of cultural and social pressure on Adventism because of, and I don't think many people realize this, because of how significant and culturally dominant Calvinism is in American mm -hmm. culture at large, right? Mm -hmm. and, and it's important for us to be able to think about like Adventism, sure, God's truth, sure, based on scripture, sure, but it is an American phenomenon, right? We you cannot oh, yeah. Yeah. you cannot disentangle Adventism from America. I mean, that's part of our eschatology, right? Mm -hmm. But like with that comes the fact that Adventism is subject to the goings on of theological interactions within American society and the cultural dominance that a lot of Calvinist ways of thinking have, even within Arminian denominations. So Mm -hmm. All of that is a way of saying, make sure you're paying attention to the theological influences that exist around us. Absolutely. To bring it back. And just, the, and just as a, yeah. just as a final plug, before we bring it back to the, the, um, you know, the regulative normative worship thing, um, just as a plug, uh, future Pottenar series that I will be doing. So keep your eyes out for this. It will come to a theater near you. 
is uh, I'm actually going to be doing a whole season on headship theology. Mm. Uh, headship theology is an idea that is actually uh, found very commonly in conservative Adventism today, and it's having a lot of influence in the in in, in a lot of debates regarding women in ministry. And it's a pure one hundred percent. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, man, I can't think of the word right now. When you bring something in that's foreign, um, like an import. <laughs> yeah, it's a pure one hundred percent import. Um, from certain sects of Calvinism, because even all, not all Calvinists agree with headship. It's certain sects of right. Calvinism. Um, yeah. and, and sort of like, like, it's like a straight up import into Adventism. And so many people, particularly of the conservative class are soaking it up without critically analyzing its source and the theological right. premises of that source that are literally the opposite of <laughs> what Adventist premises are. So anyways, right. keep your eyes out for that. That's coming in the future sometime. Yeah, that sounds um, interesting. Whole, whole, whole season on headship because I want to talk about things. This was the purpose of this podcast is to engage the, 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 the deep issues in our church that affect our ability to do mission. And, and that's one of them. But right now we're not talking about that. We're talking about the uh, worship wars. So <laughs> let's go back. Uh, normative yeah. versus regulative. Mm-hmm. And I do want to say just as a quick disclaimer too, this is no disrespect on my part to Calvinists. I mean, the band I play in, like the the two other guys in the band are from a more Calvinist leaning tradition, Baptist tradition. I don't think they currently are at a Baptist church, but like, you know, whatever. And also it it's it bears, you know, mentioning that later Calvinists after Calvin himself definitely flipped the script on the whole instrumental music thing. You know, like yeah. there, there has yeah. been a huge tradition of Calvinist music, and I find that they're actually quite good at it. Um, mm. one, of, one of the things that also comes up, and, and this is an aside of sorts, but people always talk about contemporary Christian music as if it's an exclusively Pentecostal or charismatic phenomenon. And, and because of oftentimes the repetitive nature of the songwriting, they will peg the entire idea of modern Christian music styles as shallow. What's interesting to me is that like, in some ways, uh, Calvinist songwriters and Calvinist artists have reacted against that. And they tend to go in a very cerebral direction with their, their music and their songwriting, which granted, I don't necessarily always agree with like every fine point of the theology per se, but more often than not, it, it lends itself to some very profound music. Um, which I have I've valued a lot. A, a lot of my favorite Christian music has been made by Calvinists. And so, I mean, it's it's ironic for me to say that after having just brought up the, the <laughs> what I did. But I mean, this is the thing. <laughs> Everything in this conversation is about nuance, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Everything in this conversation is about nuance. Um, it, it also bears mentioning, too, that for however much... Um, Calvinism often represents the theological and social conservative side of things. There are certain areas where because, because they are direct line to the Reformation, right, and, and they don't criticize the Reformers in the way that Adventists might be prone to as having not gone far enough, um, they really do stick to their sola scriptura guns when it comes to a lot of things. And so, mm. you know, if you think of the mid-2000s, the the surge of Christian hip hop was largely driven by Calvinists, like mm -hmm. the whole one one six thing and Lecrae and Trip Lee and their whole right, cohort. Yeah. 
was mm -hmm. heavily Calvinistic and kind of spearheaded in some ways, or at least supported by John Piper of all people. So, mm -hmm. you know, it, it, this is, <laughs> these are the nuances we have to really take into account when we are talking about worship and, and the That's principles right. that drive it, because you, you can't paint everyone with the same brush. Right. So that's right. Like even for me, as, as much as I challenge Calvinist thought, Mm -hmm. um, man, like one of my favorite authors and thinkers of modern Christianity is Francis Chan. He's a Calvinist, you know? Right. Uh, so yeah, like there's nuance everywhere. So that's, it's always important to keep that, that point in mind. Yeah. And I guess pertaining to music too, and I, I, I really need to jump off these asides, but so many things just come to my mind. I remember back in my undergrad, um, when I was in systematic theology, we were reading, um, in My Place Condemned He Stood by J.I. Packer, of all people. And I mean, if you want hardline, like Calvinists, look no further than J.I. Packer. But, you know, that's that's one of the places where I first realized that many Calvinists have this uh, musical love affair with the Wesleys, um, mm. which is hilarious because that's their theological opposite. Um, that's right. Yeah, yeah. But I remember this line that struck me for... I was like, is this admiration or condemnation or both at the same time? I have no idea what's going on. But <laughs> he was reflecting on um, the, the hymn, And Can It Be, uh, which is a Wesley hymn. And um, I guess whatever, I'm pretty sure it was J.R. Packer's book. Yeah, Packer was going on this thing about how I, he was on his uh, irresistible grace trip. Let's that part of Tulip, right? And he was like, so Wesley's, come on, man, when you guys sing, my chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That's the worst singing I've ever done. But like, my chains fell off, my heart was free. He's like, where's your, where's your precious Arminianism now? That sure sounds a lot like uh, irresistible grace to me. <laughs> and I'm just like, you, you sneaky Calvinists trying to to swipe the hymns from yeah, the Arminian yeah. Wesleyans right from under them. So, <laughs> but it's interesting to me because I, I have noticed since then that like the, some Calvinists, they, they have this love affair with the Wesleyan hymns, which is just soteriologically hilarious to me. But anyways. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I hear you. I hear you. <laughs> I have to, I have to write this ship that I have so aggressively knocked off course. Um, <laughs> so if I were to ask you, um, what principle between the normative principle and the regulative principle would you say Adventism tends to operate under? Um, well, if I'm thinking of the traditionalist perspective, um, do we go norm? I mean, regulative, I don't, I don't even think, think we, we do, do that. We don't know. And this is the thing. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting because, and this is where I think, Adventism kind of starts talking with two heads or out of both sides of its mouth. Like we are very big on worship informalism. We are very big on freedom and self-expression. We don't like mm -hmm. pre-written prayers. We like spontaneous prayers That's done right. quietly and in order, but we believe you need to make it up on the spot right? Mm -hmm. Reciting yeah. scripture as prayer is not something that's really done very much in Adventism, right? We are very- Which would be more on... of like a, like, a, like a Catholic sort of like liturgy, like, or, right. or, or Orthodox liturgy where there's pre-written prayers and scriptural reading and things. Yeah. 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 yeah we don't, if, if, we don't generally go for that. Yeah. We don't generally go for that. And it's interesting because if you ask even the most traditionalist Adventist, why don't we go for that? 
you'll get very, very hippie sounding language about like, it has to be from your heart and your relationship with God. It has to be from like your experience and like a true expression of your praise and your needs and your questions, right? It has to, it has to come from inside of you. And I'm like, bro, that is like very <laughs> open. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and, yeah. and that is the ethos that I think undergirds a lot of, of Adventist worship that it is ultimately about like a personal connecting with God. So it's, it's interesting when, again, I think it's, it's ad hoc choosing, right? Where we are going to be very lenient and very open-minded and permissive and free flowing. And, and actually, I mean, I think in many ways that's an expression of our free will theology, right? Mm. But we do that in certain areas. And then in other areas, we are like hyper strict and we we, we flirt with regulative, you know what mm -hmm. I mean? And, mm -hmm. and it, it's a very, it, it's kind of double-minded. Full disclosure, I kind of like the idea of uh, recited prayers and pre-written prayers, especially if they are just the words of scripture. Um, hmm. I think we, we could stand to do a lot more of that. And over the years, I have actually tried to make um, collective group scripture reading a part of not just the worship service, but songs themselves, like do it in the middle of songs. Um, there's th things like that. Um, I'm, and I, I don't want to get distracted, but like, you know, incorporating those elements that maybe we might be traditionally ad averse to, um, mm -hmm. just as a way of not getting too far down the honestly kind of like sometimes too hippie for me trained with some Adventists and like the, the free form who knows where this is going types of prayers that sometimes get prayed, you know? <laughs> um, so that's a, those are some rambling thoughts, but I, I want to bring up the, this issue of the normative and regulative principles, just because I think it, it evokes a lot about like what disposition and what thought process are you bringing to how you conceive of worship? What defines worship? You know, mm -hmm. is it a specific set of rituals that God has demanded? Is it like a very narrow set of things that God has demanded? Or can you have an expansive and all-encompassing uh, concept of worship? Because this is the thing for me. When you confine worship to an event, to an hour on the weekend, to something that happens in a specific building, in a specific time, specific place... I think that really runs contrary to the Bible's view of worship. You know, mm. worship is also work. Worship is also service. Worship is how you live your life. It's how you serve your neighbor. You know, when Jesus says things like, whatever you've done for the least of these, my brethren, you've done it also to me. I, he's not only talking about mission there. That is, that is, you know, to pick up from the last thing we did, that is one of those places where mission <laughs> mission, mission and worship. Uh, mission. I love it, bro. A wise mission man once told me, "Inventing words is a sign you've been called to ministry." Oh wow. Okay. Well, yeah. then in that case, look at me go. <laughs> um. Yeah. Wow. My vocabulary betrays me often. Uh, <laughs> service and and love to your neighbor is one of those areas where worship and mission overlap to the point of becoming one mm -hmm. right and so to say that like oh you can't do anything in worship that is not specifically commanded or exemplified in scripture i'm like okay i guess but like i suppose you could kind of follow that principle and say like well i'm commanded to love my neighbor so 
watch me go do that in all kinds of ways, right? Yeah. <laughs> watch me go do all kinds of like prayer sessions with people because that's loving mm. my neighbor. You, you know what I mean? I, I think that like when you think of worship as something that can be done in like any number of like innumerable countless ways, um, it's like, oh yeah, that's just service. That's just modeling my life after Christ. Um, yeah. And so I'll, I'll, already I think we're kind of busting the paradigm that says like, worship is this narrow set of behaviors and activities, right? So something I want to also, I know I've, we've been so long on preliminaries already with this, but we touched <laughs> on some valuable things. Um, something else that I would like to kind of drape over top of this topic and just have people kind of like holding to in the back of their minds is three scriptural stories. And then I think in some ways epitomize the major themes of like what it means to discuss worship as sacrifice. And those, of course, are Cain and Abel, uh, Nadab and Abihu, Ananias and Sapphira. I think those mm -hmm. three stories carry with them. I mean, for one thing, those are stories that get appealed to quite a lot in our debates. Um, and I think they're very worthwhile to hold those stories in mind when we discuss this topic, especially like mm -hmm. thinking of worship as sacrifice, because any number of the things I've got in our outline here will in some way, I think, map onto themes that emerge from those stories. Yeah, that's right. So yeah, yeah. When it comes awesome, to, man. yeah, man. Oh, no, I, I was just saying awesome. Sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was just Thanks. saying awesome, man. Awesome. Cool, cool, yeah, cool. Keep going, bro. I do have a question, but keep, it might get answered in a minute. Maybe not. I'll just keep going. Yeah. Sure. Keep the question in mind. I'll just, uh, I'll summarize my point B from our outline here. So um, one of the things, and if people want to maybe a more in-depth explanation of this, I don't have to go in full detail. Um, there are numerous passages in the Old Testament, since we're allowing ourselves to use the Old Testament here. Um, we now have to define the parameters of how we use it and what we use from it, right? Because mm. you know, newsflash, we're not uh, performing the animal sacrifices in the temple anymore. Uh, the, the final sacrifice has been offered. So clearly, something has been done away with. And the question is, how, how, my, how many cues do we take from the Old Testament? You will find a, a cluster of verses, especially from like some of the narrative books in the Hebrew Bible. Um, think of Second Kings, think of First Chronicles, think of the books of Samuel, where you have the usage of different instruments in different contexts. Many people will point to some of these passages as ways of saying like, oh, uh, this tells us what we can and can't do instrumentally speaking in worship. Um, and I just want to do a quick disclaimer and saying I think there's very good reasons why we should take all of those passages as descriptive passages rather than prescriptive ones, telling us simply that certain instruments either were or weren't there, were or weren't used, and shouldn't be value judgments against those instruments. Um, should We definitely shouldn't take them as commands from God to use those instruments. Other, in, yeah. in, in actual I think fact, we, 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 I think we run into... Oh. Yeah. Oh, you, go on. Finish that thought, yeah, because I, 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 I think you say, might be going where I was going. <laughs> if anything, if we thought of the list of instruments present in the scripture as commands from God, as like, you must use these, then in, in general, we would be regularly failing to live up to that requirement, because uh, by and large, some of those instruments we don't have, at least not in mm -hmm. the versions that would have existed back in the day. So that, that was my thought That's right. right there. Yeah, and, and, and right alongside that, I would say that if we see these lists of instruments as, um, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? As a boundary on, you know, you can't use anything outside of this. Well, I mean, obviously pianos didn't <laughs> exist 
back then or organs um interestingly right. enough the history of the organ is just about as contentious as uh, drums are today <laughs> if anyone's right. interested in researching that so yeah like i think i agree with you and so here's the question that i had that i think is a perfect time to to jump into it because i'm thinking about the normative versus regulative and i'm like we definitely don't go regulative because if scripture regulates what worship ought to look like in the instruments we use and don't use then we, we definitely don't do that um yeah. we don't use all the instruments that are there and we use instruments that are not there primarily because they didn't exist yet but you know right. um they're, they're not there uh, but there's a trend that i've seen in a lot of like really traditional approaches to this conversation that goes something like this that the way that we conduct worship in the church must be modeled entirely on how worship was conducted in the sanctuary ah yeah now, there are so many problems with that, beginning with the fact that the New Testament church is not the equivalent of the Old Testament sanctuary. But right. I, just, I, I, I just wanted to get your thoughts on that because it seems like it's kind of like regulative, but it's like a, a sub-regulative where it's like we're not using all of the Old Testament, we're just, just the sanctuary. That's it. Right. And like I've even heard people make the claim um, for example, with the Day of Atonement, where it's uh, you know it's a, the Day of Atonement is a day of um, you know your 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 mourning essentially on the Day of Atonement, and it's a very somber you know day. And I heard one preacher make the claim that we are living in the antitypical Day of Atonement, so therefore none of our worship music should be happy because where the, the the day of atonement was a day of of somberness and self-reflection and if we're singing ha since we're living in the antitypical day of atonement like all of our worship should be somber and you know right. and i was just like wow that's weird but anyways i would love your thoughts on that wow yeah so this this is going to put me on a train of thought and i hope i can keep up with uh, the things you've put in my head just now because this, <laughs> this will really un unpack a lot of things so um one of the things that I observe in Adventism that concerns me is, I mean, what I would call the over-Leviticalization of Christian worship, okay? The over-Leviticalization of Christian worship. Why this is a matter of concern for me ties into our questions about, uh, you know, loyalty to God and, and, you know, accidental forays into paganism, what it means to offer God the kind of worship that he desires and what he has expressed that he desires. It, it ties into sacrifices and so on and, and whatever. So let's talk about um, priesthood and sacred space. <sighs> Sanctuary, that's a sacred space. Definitely very important within the Adventist framework, um, but also kind of a, a, a cause for uh, confusion when it comes to our endless uh, seeming debates about like what does and doesn't carry over from the old covenant to the new or for some people is there even a difference between the old covenant and the new covenant right um, one of the things that I think is really worth pointing out is that and this is uh, there, there's a lot of arguments in the new testament that I think kind of depend on this logic um, the hebrew people were a people taken from polytheism and put in God's like, you know, proverbially speaking, 10 step program to move them towards monotheism proper. Right. And, and scholars will say, you know, in some cases that like, it's even difficult to quantify Israelite religion in the early stages of the Hebrew Bible as pure monotheism. Some of them mm -hmm. will say like, you know, 
henotheism. They believe in all kinds of other gods, actually, but they, they have found loyalty to this one, and mm-hmm. they're working to maintain that loyalty. So it, it's, it's like, wow, sorry, my train of thought. I, I, it's going so fast. I'm trying to make sure I have everything. So pardon, pardon the, the <laughs> delays. It, sometimes I cannot keep up with the pace of my own thinking. Um, Israelite religion in the Hebrew Bible is a pathway from polytheism to monotheism. And in, in shaping it that way, God seems to have made concessions to the worldview and cultural practices of things that the Hebrews would have understood from the world around them. It is curious for however much we take Hebrews seriously that the sanctuary was modeled after the true reality that is in heaven, that God's system, his religious, you know, the the temple cult, as as scholars would refer to it, not cult in the pejorative sense, but like cultists, like a worshiping community, right? The temple cult includes animal sacrifice, which has direct parallels to surrounding pagan nations around Israel. It is very curious. Um, You know, scholars will point out that like the Hebrew temple does not necessarily have, it's not a world away from the construction form of other pagan temples that have an inner sanctum of sorts, right? And and the the ground becomes holier as you go in. This design is there. Um, One of the things we have to reckon with is the question of like, okay, so for this worship space that Hebrews tells us was modeled after the heavenly reality. So was that modeled after the heavenly reality with God keeping the human reality in mind and making concessions in ways that is like, oh, I'm, I'm kind of uh, framing this in ways you'll understand. I'm taking a greater reality and, and uh, accommodating it to your finite human perspectives. That's one way to look at it, at, at the, the cause of those similarities. And so God is like, okay, the pagan nations around you are doing it this way. This is how you understand temples. I have a temple. It's not quite that, but here you go. Or uh, do you go the the C.S. Lewis route with the good dreams that even some of these pagan nations around might have had a understanding of a a lingering remnant of an understanding that the spiritual Mm -hmm. beings that rule over them, you'd mentioned Deuteronomy 32. These are beings that once inhabited God's space. They do remember what it was like. Maybe there are things that they have let slip that, that they've passed on that are echoes of something that is true. Like mm. either one of those, I think, is a conceivable framework. And obviously, you know, your theology will parse that one way or the other. Right. But at the end of the day, this already opens up a can of worms that there are similarities, cultural similarities, symbolic similarities between the forms of worship pack- practiced by the surrounding pagan nations and those practiced within Israel as demanded by God in the Torah. So when we come to our modern discussions and talking about like that which is clean and unclean, that which is pure and impure, that which is acceptable and unacceptable, we have to contend with the fact that God seems to have been willing to accommodate, to contextualize to these humans in the very form of things that he was trying to wean them off of. And that, to to our sensibilities, that sounds like walking in the danger zone. That sounds Mm. like tiptoeing around compromise. But my question is, well, God himself seems to have been able to toe that line, mm. right? The more you look into it, I and this is, again, not wholesale endorsement. I've been listening to a lot of Michael Heiser lately, 
Um, yeah, same here. I don't know yeah, if you're he's an interesting guy. He's yeah, a very yeah. interesting guy. I, I just finished I reading one of his books. Oh, yeah? Which one? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Unseen Realm? I don't The Unseen Realm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah? I'm working very my way through that one slowly. Yeah. Fascinating guy. Obviously an expert in his field. I don't agree with every single thing he ever says. Yeah, same. But yeah. like when he's insightful, he's mind-blowing. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, like <laughs> yeah. when, he, when he nails it, you're like, oh my gosh, what have I been reading this whole time, you know? <laughs> um, and so, yeah. you know, when you get into the ancient Near Eastern context of the scriptures, you realize that there are so many images that have parallels in Mesopotamian and Babylonian mythology, in Canaanite mythology, in Egyptian mythology. I mean, for goodness sake, the son of man riding up to the ancient of days on a cloud, the cloud rider was Baal, Baal mm-hmm. in our in our parlance. But yep. like, yeah, that, that was a symbol that would have been recognizable at the time. as like, oh yeah, Baal is like that. He rides on a cloud up yeah. to El, the supreme god. Oh, dang it, El, wait a second. That's... <laughs> That not that the biblical God? Yes, but also the name of a God in the Canaanite pantheon. What the yeah. heck is going on here? So as soon as you get into like temple space, the way God reveals himself to the Israelites, the worship system that they had, all of a sudden you see all of these strange overlaps with paganism, all of mm. these strange accommodations to the culture, which apparently we're supposed to be scared of, but not God. Um, <laughs> and, and to maybe put yeah. a fine point on it, like before, before you, you may have something to say, um, you know, what is the right name to call God? Like, what should we call this guy? You know, like what, what's the right designation? Because what we get in scripture, we, we get a whole bunch of names in scripture, but the only one that seems to be like absolutely and definitively unique to him is the divine name, the Tetragrammaton, the four letters, yad heh vav Y-H-W-H, what we attempt to pronounce correctly as Yahweh, mm. right? And which we're not sure if that's even the correct pronunciation. With, right, no one really knows. Because the Masoretes yeah. were like, nah, we're not giving you this, but... Um, <laughs> we will keep um, the vowels to ourselves. <laughs> yes. But um, interestingly, the one name that seems to be absolutely unique to him besides Jesus, and really that's just Josh... Uh, but the one name that seems to be absolutely unique to our God is the, also the name that has traditionally the most impetus behind it, the most rationale for maybe don't say it at all if you take mm. the, the Jewish approach to the third commandment, right? So yeah. what you're left with aside from Yahweh is a bunch of names that have parallels in, in pagan culture and pagan religions. L mm. being, I think, the most like glaringly obvious of them but it translates to our modern contexts as well when we think about the greek new testament theos was the word that they used for god because it means god but that word could just as well mean zeus Mm. even in the same way that the english word god today does that like double duty as like referring to the monotheistic god and also to every polytheistic god there is out there it is a very yeah. imprecise isn't isn't category. the term isn't the term god itself uh, uh, i might be uh, maybe wrong on the specific here but I'm pretty sure it's a nordic comes from a nordic word yeah, uh, if it's I, not I, if it's if it's not nordic it's one of those um sort of e- european pagan um yeah, like tribal cultures yeah uh, i mean sure the the 
the British Isles were a pagan nation before they were Christianized, mm -hmm. right? And yeah. the English yeah. language has pagan history just like pretty much every other language, right? Mm -hmm. So yep. I grew up in a Japanese Adventist church, and there we call God Kamisama. Kami is the Shinto word for nature spirits, essentially. Mm. It, mm. The, the Kami are a very difficult um, category to define in like Western terms. So like it'll be translated as gods, but like yeah. the 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 rank that they occupy doesn't neatly map onto the Western concept of gods per se, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. If you've yeah. ever watched any Studio Ghibli films, a lot of those like strange creatures floating around in the woods and stuff, those are manifestations of the kami, right? Mm. And yet that at Japanese Christians around the world, well. There's not a lot of Japanese Christians around the world. They tend to stay in Japan, right? But Japanese Christians, <laughs> wherever you find them, will use that pagan designation mm. of kami as the name for God. Yeah. So, like, we are as soon as you get into the question of how has God revealed himself in scripture to human beings, you immediately run into this fascinating kind of enigma that God, who wants to wean humans off of paganism, uses the vocabulary and the imagery of mm. paganism to do it when he sees fit. Yeah. So yeah. And, and what that, that says is, to me is yeah, that God ahead. is not as hypersensitive about peculiarity like we tend to be. And that what God considers peculiar is probably a lot more like existentially profound than the superficial things we tend to associate that with. Right. Um, because there are certainly things, you know, in the Bible that God is like, no, like, for example, human sacrifice is like, you know, like it's, it's yeah. really clear. And then there's areas that and, and this is one of the things that really concerns me and, and, and frustrates me to no end. When Adventists talk about we're called to be a peculiar people, it's almost like what they mean by that is uh, the stranger and more out of touch you are deliberately. But weird. that. Yeah, yeah. But that, you know, that doesn't, that's like, that doesn't match what I see God himself doing in scripture. He certainly wants his people to be different and unique. And that difference and uniqueness seems to be primarily concerned with social issues as opposed to aesthetic ones. Now, there are a few little aesthetic things in there, you know, but for the most part, it seems like God isn't hypersensitive about, oh, don't wear that because the pagans wear that. And don't use that word because the pagans use it. And don't play right. that instrument because the pagans play it, you know? And, right. oh, you know what? Um, yeah, let's let's forget about the whole animal sacrifice thing because all the pagans are doing the that. Let's come up with that, something right. different, you know? It's yeah. like he, he doesn't seem concerned about that at all. And I think that that's something that we really need to consider because in in traditional adventist culture we're we're so obsessed with being different we yeah. may not go as far as the amish for example but we're so sure. obsessed with being different that we we nurture uh, social spaces that are completely out of touch with the world around us right we're um, and sake. For its own sake. And, and, but here's the strange thing. And I actually wrote a post about this on Facebook recently, you know, like when I was growing up, it was a, a big conversation that a lot of people in church were having a lot of leaders in church. Don't let the world creep into the church. You know, the world is sneaking in the lines between holiness and unholiness are being blurred and the sacred and the secular are mingling. And we need to hold the line. We need to defend, you know, the righteousness of God and the, 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 you know, the peculiarity of his church. We need to, we to stand at the gate and guard right that was the rhetoric 
And what they meant by that was don't let drums in here. Make sure, and this is the community I grew up in, very ultra conservative yep. Latino, right? Make sure all the women are wearing long skirts and no one's wearing jewelry and the guys don't have long hair, right? Like that's what they what that's what they meant about the world creeping into the church. What's interesting is nobody was talking about the racism already present in the church. Right. Nobody was talking about the colorism already present in the church. Nobody was right. talking about the sexism already present in the church. We were right. obsessed with all these superficial issues that we felt made us more like the world, that we were completely missing the things that really did make us like the world already. And right. it was these power plays and the way in which people in the church related to each other within a system of thought that was all about dominance and control and the yeah. way they talked to each other and the way they backbit each other and the way that board meetings and business meetings would descend into borderline violent chaos all in the name of holiness, right? And it's like, right. but let's not let drums in here or we might be like the world. And for me, that's so confusing because you look at, for example, the history of Adventism, a lot of traditionalists that I've known, and this was me as well during the time that I was really immersed in that camp. They kind of see like 1930s, 40s, 50s Adventism as like the quintessential, you know, like this is when we had it the best, you know, like right. if we're going to make Adventism great again, we're going to go back to this, you know? Right. Um, and I'm like, but do you realize that this was the time where like, you know, around these times, it's particularly during the Jim Crow era, like Adventism was complicit with that. Like if you were black, there was a separate entrance at the general conference for you. You know, right. like if you went to Andrews University and you were white and someone and you fell in love with a black person, you couldn't date. It was illegal for interracial dating to take place. Right. Like, um, I mean, these things, you know, we, we, we talk about, uh, I, I believe it's Lucy Byer, the, the lady who went to an Adventist, um, sanitarium i believe it yeah. was because she was ill and she needed help and they sent her away because she was black and they didn't want to scare away the white customers you know and it's like right. we talk about that era of adventism as though that's when we weren't worldly because we didn't sing hillsong and it's like right. no that's when we were more worldly because look at what was happening socially and that's what i see in scripture i see god isn't so much concerned with cultural issues that look like what the world around us does. He's more concerned with character issues and right. the things that drive our hearts and the things that move and the social scripts that we create that are coercive Moral and punitive. And yeah. yeah. And, and, and yeah. So anyways, whoa, I think I caught fire then, but <laughs> no, no, it's good. It's good. This is the thing. This is the thing um, to, to pick up maybe on some of the language of scripture. God is constantly saying to his people in the Hebrew Bible, you must be a discerning people who can tell the difference between like holy and unholy, clean and unclean. And I think part of the passion you're displaying right now is that as we have moved along in what God has showed us of himself, as we have entered a new covenant, as we have entered the era of the church and a different set of expectations of, of what really does matter, we have the teachings of Jesus now. So the, the fervor that you're displaying right now is, I think, exactly a manifestation of you having discernment of mm. discerning between the pure and the impure, the clean and the unclean, the holy and the unholy. And we've had that skewed for us. We, we've had that like put in the wrong order so that we actually mm. call what is impure, pure and call what is pure, impure. And, mm -hmm. and it, it's, uh, I mean, this is, we are making the mistake that yeah. we, we're recapitulating on the mistakes from way, way, way back when. So yeah. I think being able to passionately point out and say like, hey, we're actually running in the wrong direction. 
that that is the right thing. That's the right impulse. So I I wouldn't criticize you at all for going off a little bit. I thought <laughs> we need more people to to catch that fervor. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this: as we as we dig deeper into that, um, this whole idea yep. of of paganism culture, um, what what would you say? If you could walk us through the the overall, and I'm I'm looking here at uh, on, on your notes, you've got a, a particular point in D where it says Paul and the Bible's broader overall approach to pagan cultural influence. Um, walk us through that. Like, what what would be the biblical sort of overarching approach to that tension? Right. So, God created the world and all the people in it, and God is for all people. The covenant with Abraham was for all people. I will bless you and make you a great nation through your seed. All nations will be blessed, right? Mm -hmm. This has always been God's plan to like reach the whole world and through his people to bring humanity back into union with himself. So when we use that kind of all encompassing language, people are fine with it. But what you realize that means is that God is open to interacting with the pagan nations around. God does care about them. God is at work among them, maybe in ways that are not even reported to us in the Hebrew Bible. There's mm-hmm. this incredible passage that actually just came to mind. I can't remember what chapter of Isaiah it's in, but he there, there's a prophecy um, that says God will strike the Egyptians, striking and healing, and they will return to him and they will cry out for help and he will send saviors to deliver them. And he will say, I, I can't remember exactly the wording of it, but basically he says like he pronounces these blessings over um, Assyria, Israel, and Egypt, and refers to the Egyptians as my people. He's like, blessed be Egypt, my people, and Israel, my inheritance. And you're like, bro, wow. Egypt is the bad yeah. guys, right? So, yeah. but like, th- there's this idea that runs through Adventism. And actually, I think this is kind of an important part of Adventist soteriology, that we don't have a purely exclusivistic view of the gospel. And I think this runs through Ellen White quite a bit too, that we believe there are people in the pagan nations who, to use Adventist parlance, are walking according to the light they have received, right? We love that language. Um, Some people map it onto some of Paul's rhetoric in Romans chapter two. Um, If you know what I'm thinking of there with... uh, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature the things that are in the law, they are a law unto themselves. Their conscience is either yep. condemning or affirming them. The approximate language of Paul in Romans 2 there. I need to memorize scripture better, but here we are. Um, you know, um, Oops, I was just talking and I was muted. Um, I like it. And I was just, uh, just going to say, like I, the, the text that you just quoted as well from um, about Egypt and Assyria, that is in uh, Isaiah chapter 19, verses 22 onward and yeah it's it's really striking um where it says uh, in verse 25 the lord almighty will bless them saying blessed be egypt my people assyria the work of my hands and israel my inheritance uh and and there's also this uh, idea uh, and i've shared this with people before who are like hyper critical of like people in different denominations you know i'll say like you know if we take revelation where god is calling people out of babylon it's interesting the language that he uses he doesn't say come out of babylon and join my people he says, come out of Babylon, my people, mm, right. which means they are already his people, his people while right. in Babylon. And so I say to people, like, be very careful how you criticize the people that God says, my people, you know, right. just because they don't belong to your church 
doesn't give you the right to just go haywire. They are God's people. They are his children. So anyways, right. yeah, just a, just a, no, that's, that is great feedback on that, man. I, I appreciate that very much. Um, I, I think when you start seeing these patterns, um, there is a lot of credence to the idea that God is silently behind the scenes at work among other people groups, mm-hmm. maybe in ways that the scriptures just don't have the space to reveal to us. Like, but where did those Parthian guys come from when Jesus was born? Those wise men from the East. What, what, what exactly tipped them off that something was going on with the Hebrew God? Did they have the scriptures? It seems more like they were looking at the stars. They were following yeah. signs in the sky. They were astrologers. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean this, is, this is, God is clearly doing something among other people groups in ways that we just aren't privy to. And our mm-hmm. job is to trust him with that and to, to recognize that like, I mean, here's a mission principle for you. And this is something that was instilled in me during like some of my mission days, but like wherever you go on mission, recognize that you're showing up and God is already there. Yes. You're not introducing him. Like you are showing up to work that he has already started Mm -hmm. in human hearts, wherever they happen to be. That's it for today, everyone. We are out of time, but if you tune in next week, this is going to continue for quite a few episodes, so make sure you keep tuning in. Like, share, subscribe, tell your friends about it, and uh, enjoy the journey along with us. In the meantime, if you haven't had a chance to do it yet, I invite you to go to the storychurchproject.com and check out the new Bible study guide, The Road, A Journey Through the Narrative of Scripture. The second edition is now available, and this is a Bible study set that's been specifically designed for communicating the narrative of redemption, the story of scripture to millennials, Zeds, uh, post-church, unchurched, post-modern generations. Make sure you check that out. Get your hands on a copy and I will catch you next week. <laughs>